Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Scene with Dan Patrick ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Just a heads up that this interview with Anthony Michael Hall contains strong language and some sensitive content, including mentions of suicidal ideation. It may not be appropriate for all audiences. But we think you're crazy to make us write an essay telling you who we think we are. And you see us as you want to see us. In the simplest terms, the most convenient definitions. But what we found out is that each one of us is a brain. And an athlete. And a basket case. A princess. And a criminal. Does that answer your question? Sincerely yours, The Breakfast Club. Did you start to do the math, though, Mike, where you go, okay, Molly and Judd, Emilio and Allie. (laughs) No girl for me, right? Yeah. Welcome to That Scene with me, Dan Patrick, an Amazon original podcast where I get to talk to Hollywood's top actors and directors about some of the most iconic scenes that have defined their careers, helped shape the cinematic landscape, and even become fixtures in pop culture. On today's episode, we're joined by actor Anthony Michael Hall. He was born in 1968 in Boston, but grew up in New York City and began acting at age seven when he starred in a serial commercial. 1982, when he was 13, he was cast as Rusty in National Lampoon's Family Vacation. That's when he caught the attention of the film's writer, John Hughes. John and Mike went on to collaborate on three films that defined a genre, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and Weird Science. All three films were box office hits and skyrocketed Mike to fame. Close friends with Robert Downey Jr., the two were both cast in the 1985 season of Saturday Night Live. Mike was and remains the youngest cast member in history at 17. In the 90s, Mike shifted to more adult roles such as the villain in Edward Scissorhands and Bill Gates in Pirates of Silicon Valley. In the 2000s, Mike continued to work in film and TV, starring in the critically acclaimed TV show The Dead Zone. Most recently, Mike was cast in Halloween Kills, a David Gordon Green reboot of the Michael Myers franchise, written by Danny McBride. Halloween Kills is in theaters October 15th. The scene in question today from The Breakfast Club, when his character, Brian, the brain, opens up to the group about wanting to commit suicide. How often does Breakfast Club come up? You know, it's interesting. I I did this trilogy of films with the late, great John Hughes as a kid in the 80s. And it was intended, just to kind of give you a little background, that that was going to be the first one that he was going to produce and direct. As it turned out, we wound up doing 16 Candles first. But this picture, The Breakfast Club, kind of is the one that keeps finding a younger audience. It's the one that really, I think, lives in the hearts of people the most. Yeah. You are a parent's wet dream. Well, that's the problem. Look, I could see you getting all bunged up for them making you wear these kind of clothes. But face it, you're a neo-maxi-zoom dweeby. What would you be doing if you weren't out making yourself a better citizen? Why do you have to insult everybody? I'm being honest, asshole. I would expect you to know the difference. Yo, well, he's got a name. Yeah? Yeah. What's your name? Brian. See? 
I've had a long time to, to think about why that is. And I think it's almost like a form of group therapy that kicks in. When people watch it, they start projecting onto the characters and they see themselves and some of the characters or a combination of them. So it's a really an amazing thing that that film has really touched something, I think, deep within people. And I think it's really, in a nutshell, the kind of deconstruction of stereotypes, the message being that we all are more alike than we realize. How much of you is in your character? Well, first of all, I wasn't a good student as a kid. I was kind of a, you know, I think I got a GED by 11th grade. So I, I wasn't really the brain, as it were. It was really more like the character in 16 Candles was me. I was this little bobblehead, you know, all hormones <laughs> at 15, you know. But the Breakfast Club character kind of was a, a little bit of a departure because I wasn't really a brainy kid. But it was just really the dynamic that he created with all of us, Dan, that was really unique. I mean, he was a great collaborator. I think that was one of his God-given talents, not just the writing and the directing, but seeing something in all of us and, and also giving us a playground, giving us a space to create and improvise. And the way he would do it, Dan, is we would always shoot, you know, what was written for two or three takes, and then he would, we would digress and play. But he had to have trust in you. I mean, he captured adolescence, but he also has to have trust in the adolescence that is you guys. That's a great point. No, you're absolutely right. He did. And I think he had trust in that as just as a notion. He trusted the fact that I think a lot of people feel like in many ways we depart from that, you know, that sense of youth or how we felt when we were young and as we're becoming adults. He trusted in youth. That's a great point you made. I mean, I think he literally as a concept, and that was part of his exploration as a writer to kind of deal with those dynamics, you know, whether it was a forgotten birthday or all the crap that we got into in, in the Breakfast Club, you know, the problems that were created. But again, I think that, that one of the things I've learned over the years since is the idea of conflict is so important, whether it's comedy or, or a dramatic context. So he really had a great working knowledge of all that at such a young age. Now, when I look back, he was only in his 30s. You know? Were you allowed to improvise, suggest? Yeah, and that's what made it very unique, our, our dynamic. And what he did for me, he did for others, you know, for all of us, for Molly, for the cast of The Breakfast Club, even all the, the, the great supporting actors that were a part of those films and part of our ensembles. He really had that great ability to kind of see what was funny and what we could all bring to the table individually. And then he had the boldness to kind of let us try it, you know? So he really did allow us to, to improvise. He did. And a lot of times, so much is said without saying anything. And there's a lot of mannerisms. There's a lot of nuance in that scene because you guys are in that room and there's nothing else really to the movie. It's in the room, the dialogue. I got so much out of just watching not necessarily listening. Mm. Were you aware of that? I mean, you're 15 or 16 years of age, and I don't know if you understood nuance or the subtlety of, of just an eye roll or whatever it might be. Yeah, no, that's a great point too. Very astute. You know what? I was to a degree, but I also saw that he created that atmosphere. Like you're saying, if it wasn't necessarily in the jokes or the setup, but he caught all that behavior. You know, we had a wonderful editor, Dan, a woman named Dee Dee Allen. You know, she cut masterpieces like Dog Day Afternoon and Reds and Serpico. I mean, she did a lot of great films. When we made that picture, she was there from the beginning. It's often that way where the editor is on board and, and kind of assembling footage as the film is being shot. And this was in the era when we were still shooting magazines, you know, film in magazines. So you'd run out of 10 minutes of footage and the camera guy would have to go and get another roll of film essentially for the cameras. So we shot some ridiculous amount. I think it was a few hundred thousand feet of filmed footage during the making of that film. So back to your point, I think Dee Dee was really instrumental in helping him shape that because we would do long takes. It was very much like filming a play dance. So I think all those things started to develop. You know, she would catch all the behavioral things or other moments would develop that had nothing to do with the writing, as you said. You know, 
there's the group therapy scene where you talk about suicide. Yeah. Brian brings a flare gun to school. Can you remember reading this and thinking, okay, how is my character going to approach all of this? Well, I looked at kind of the end result. You know, as an actor, a lot of what you're tasked with is kind of just, it's not unlike being an athlete. You got to know your plays. You got to know where you're starting, where you're entering a scene, where you're going to end the scene. So I think understanding that at that point in the film, everybody's going to have sort of emotionally unraveled. I kind of knew where I was going to wind up. But again, in finding the vulnerabilities and, and a great point you make, you know, seeing all that behavior and kind of getting all those reactions, that was a lot of it too. They were both very astute about that, John and Dee. you know, that the film was really well balanced in that way. It wasn't just kids spitting dialogue at each other, that they were really kind of going to each other's core in a way that kind of unravels them as a group. But you had a good point too. I mean, I, I wasn't fully conscious of all those dynamics. It was just kind of unfolding. my options, you know? No, killing yourself is not an option. Well, I didn't do it, did I? No, I don't think so. It was a handgun? That was a flare gun. It went off in my locker. <laughs> it's not funny. <clears throat> yes, it is. But as you deliver this, it's emotional. Yeah. You talk about trying to commit suicide, which is a serious topic, but the way it's delivered, everybody starts laughing at you. Trying to show restraint right. before you get to that punchline. How difficult was that? It's a challenge. Yeah, no, it is. And I think, again, it speaks to his writing and the quality of what he was able to accomplish at, at such a relatively young age. And I look back, you know, he was only in his mid-30s. That's, the, I guess, the catharsis. You know, that's the, really the emotional release that an audience goes for. So w whether they're watching a comedy or a drama or even a horror picture, I think that's uh, subconsciously or unconsciously what the audience is, is aiming for. And he was able to hit all those buttons too, which is, I think, incredible. Well, I know you're giving him credit, and rightfully so, but you still have to deliver it. And you're going to give a punchline that's going to make people laugh about a serious subject. Right. Right. It might not be fair to go, hey, can you think back to when you're 16? <laughs> but when you watch it, can you watch it outside of yourself and just as an actor watching an actor? As time has gone on, it, it becomes easier for me to look at stuff. But I think one of the things you do is your, your mind kind of wanders when you watch stuff and you kind of think about where you guys were on the day or you might remember other aspects of the day, the rehearsal. That was another thing he did, Dan. He, he, he carved out time for us to rehearse, you know? So again, it's like practice for an athlete. You know, we really had a good time. I think we had about a week and a half, maybe two weeks between fittings and, you know, camera tests and all that stuff. But we really would sit down as a group, even on that set. You know, it was an old high school. I think it was called uh, Glenbrook North that had been shut down. It was in the suburbs of Chicago. And at the time, this is in the era of the USFL, as you recall. So it was so funny. We shared the school with the Chicago Blitz. So I remember seeing Vince Evans <laughs> <laughs> and, the, uh, and, and God bless him, the fledgling uh, Chicago Blitz in the hallways. And it was so funny. But we built that set in the gymnasium. So that library set was in the gym. And then we shared the grounds with the USFL team at the time. But I think that the rehearsal time was very important. Because what Hughes would do is he would take that time to start mapping with the cinematographer how he would approach it visually. So we were getting the time to get to talk about our characters, kind of integrate as a group and get to know each other. P, B, and J with the crusts cut off. Well, Brian, this is a very nutritious lunch. 
All the food groups are represented. Did your mom marry Mr. Rogers? Uh, no, Mr. Johnson. Huh. Had you been high before <laughs> the scene when you're supposed to be high? No. I wasn't high during the making of the film. No, I wasn't. But had you been high before? No, no, I wasn't. <laughs> I was tackling 10th grade. I think I was doing homework in my room. At the time, my aunt was, my great aunt Mary was, my good Catholic mother made sure my, she had my sister at the time. So she was back home in New York City. But my aunt was always my guardian and traveled with me. So honest to God, I was doing my homework in my, in my hotel room. I think it was the, uh, the O'Hare Hilton at the time. <laughs> but how did they tell you to play that? You know, I think, again, that was part of the planning of that sequence. The idea is that we're all going to kind of come undone and Molly gets upset and you know, people start attacking each other and all that stuff. So, yeah, we weren't getting high. I think at the time, I mean, it was like Emilio and Judd were of age. They were in their early 20s playing high schoolers. So they'd go out for beers. But Molly and I were, you know, with, she was with her mom and I was with my aunt in my hotel room. It wasn't, wasn't very glamorous. <laughs> Did you start to do the math, though, Mike, where you go, okay, Molly and Judd, Emilio and Allie, <laughs> no girl for me? me right yeah well that was the thing i think that john had planted that the, you know that the, the brian character winds up being the narrator for the group you know so but that's also it's a really interesting point you brought up i mean that's that's when the movie starts to work too you know this is the other thing he had a great talent for is utilizing music you know in ways that have now become very commonplace you know people love shows like gray's anatomy or there's a you know there's a plethora of shows on air that really tastefully use music. And I think that that was another great thing that he did. At the time, Universal saw that in him and they gave him a, his own kind of record label because he was so good with the placement of music. How much of the success of 16 Candles in your chemistry with Molly play into Breakfast Club, getting that role? Well, you know, I think John, he, he really found Molly first. I think he had seen her. Do you remember that picture, The Tempest, that Cassavetes had done? Yeah. It was great. Yeah. yeah, so Molly was a young girl of 13, and he he discovered her in that. And so he and the studio really got behind her, and she was always going to be the girl for 16 Candles. I was just a kid. You know, I was a, a grown up in New York. I was the son of a single mom, just a goofy kid like the kid in 16 Candles. So I auditioned for that. And after high school, I'd go to Midtown Manhattan, and I had these meetings at, at the Universal offices. And every time they kept bringing me back, I thought, well, you know what? I might be getting closer to this. It looks pretty good. And what he was doing was kind of mixing and matching us, you know, pairing us off and kind of, you know, honing in on who the cast was. So it was kind of, we just hit it off so well, Dan, on that movie that he kind of just had us both in mind for The Breakfast Club. I guess when you get older, you get these feelings and uh, these feelings make you do things you wouldn't normally do. Like swimming naked with girls? Yeah. I like swimming naked with girls. With, well, not with girls. You think I was swimming with girls? It was just one girl I saw. Oh, that that girl? Yeah. Oh, no, that's a waitress. No, I was just ordering in. She's a pool waitress. I was uh, ordering in some fish for you and Audrey and Mom. She took your order? She took my order, yeah. <laughs> swimming waitress. But you also do National Lampoon Vacation in 83. So you're rusty, 83, 16 candles, breakfast club. That's pretty good back to back to back. That's a nice three-peat there. No, you're not kidding, buddy. It, it really was. And it wasn't lost on me, even as a kid. You know, because when I auditioned for vacation, again, these are, you know, that old saying, we were all standing on the shoulders of giants. We, had, we all had mentors and benefited from great teachers or coaches and hopefully great parents. Maddie Simmons, who was the founder of National Lampoon Magazine. And, you know, he created and, and produced Animal House and all those great films. He really saw something in me, as did Harold Ramis, when I auditioned for Vacation. 
But unbeknownst to me, John Hughes had written that script. So it was really kind of in the stars. You know, I did vacation, even though I didn't meet John. And then I wound up working with him directly on three films that he directed right after that. So I was very, very blessed, man. It really was. Great run. But now you're dealing with grownups in National Lampoon, whereas you're dealing with people, your peers in the other 16 Candles and Breakfast Club. Did it work better working for grownups in that order to your peers? Or do you think it would have worked better the other way around? That's an interesting question. It just kind of flowed, to be honest, Dan, because, you know, on the, on the set of vacation, I remember just, I mean, honestly, idolized all those people. You know, I'm 53, so in the 70s, you know, I had asked my mom if I could stay up for SNL, you know, but I would watch SNL as a kid in those early years with the greats, with Bill Murray and Chevy and the great Belushi and Gilda and that whole cast. Um, so when I got on the set of vacation as a kid, you know, first of all, we were able to take that trip. This is long before blue screen and green screen. So we actually went to Colorado as a crew. We went to Arizona. It was amazing. You know what I mean? <laughs> Good thing we didn't have all that digital support because we wouldn't have seen the country. But it was just a great experience. So I remember just being on set then, looking up to Imogene Coca, and there's Chevy, and there's John Candy, and Brian Doyle Murray I got to work with, who's a great comedic actor, Bill's brother. So I was just I was just blown away, honestly. I was just a kid literally looking up to all those people. It was a lot of fun. But you have comedic timing. There's something there when I watch you deliver the lines or you're even listening to a line delivered to you. I don't know if it's, it's something that's in your DNA or it's something learned, but you're doing it at a really young age. Because you did go on to Saturday Night Live. I mean, you've done serious stuff, but... Yeah, there's there's comedy in there. I don't know if that's what you wanted to do when you were growing up. You know what? It's it's a really interesting thing. You know, I have such love to this day. I love comics. I love stand up comedy. I grew up watching them. You know, when I was a kid, honest to God, Dan, my my heroes growing up were were really George Carlin, Richard Pryor. And then in high school, I discovered Eddie Murphy. I thought Eddie was great on SNL. I used to, again, stay up late, you know, so it was very surreal. My my turn because. A couple years later, I was hired by Lorne, and typically he goes the other route, right? He finds people out of Second City or great young stand-ups, and I was really blessed and fortunate, even though I didn't have a great run on SNL, that I came to Lorne's attention. Now, here to review William F. Buckley's latest opus, Hijinks, are our literary correspondents, Robert Downey and Michael Hall. Gentlemen. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you very much. Excuse me. For one thing, I want to say that Mr. Buckley's previous book, which of course <coughs> had a much, much deeper, uh, let's say his last book, which was, of course. Robert Downey Jr. tells the story of how much power you may have had at Saturday Night Live that you wanted Robert Downey Jr. to join the cast of Saturday Night Live. <laughs> How much clout did you have back then? I, I had enough to get on the show, but you know what I did do is I brought him to the attention of Lauren. You know the auditions were at the old Brillstein Gray offices right there on Broadway in the center of Times Square. And you know what I did for Robert is I, I was able to help coordinate that audition and 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 bring him to Lauren's attention. But the rest was on him. I mean, we uh, we all saw it in Robert even then. You know when we did Weird Science, he just had such a great self awareness and again great comedy, great natural humor. He talked about that you guys wanted bunk beds at Saturday Night Live. <laughs> I can't speak for Iron Man. I don't know what where that shredded memory came from, but no, I think it was just the excitement of at the time when when you get introduced as a cast and you're working at Thirty Rock. I mean, it's a great experience, you know. And even to be very honest, when the show sucked, you still had a great time, you know. If it wasn't a great show or if you didn't have like a a breakout sketch, 
just that environment, Dan, is you probably heard from many people you've interviewed. It's like rock and roll theater all rolled into one. It's such a, it's a real grind, man. You come in on a Monday, Dan, and everybody is getting together and you start pairing off with the writers and you cut everybody kind of like in a college atmosphere kind of way, checks in with each other and you start the writing. And then what happens is that by Wednesday at, at noon, we're all told to kind of hand in our sketches and we'd do a big round table read through, which Lauren would kind of uh, sit at the head of the table as it were. And basically all the departments would be invited and we do a read through of all the sketches. And, you know, Lauren, based on the reactions from our crew and cast, he would then start determining how he would shape the show. And he'd go back to his office and then the classic thing with the index cards on the cork board. I mean, it's amazing, but that's how he really kind of designs the show. Do you keep anything from those movies? National Lampoon, <laughs> 16 Candles, Breakfast Club? No, you know, occasionally I might, in the old days, they'd give you the wardrobe. These days, you got to cut a deal. I just did something where I wanted the suit, and I, I think they <laughs> took it out of my check, so it's coming to me. But uh, <laughs> usually, I just try to get the seat backs. That's enough. Those director's chair seat backs. I kind of have a collection of those over the years. Were those your braces in reality? Those were, Dan. Yeah, we used to joke, and, and that's fo so funny because I got to make those jokes in 16 Candles, some of those ad-libs about, damn, I got my headgear on. You know, that was kind of like, it was almost like how I woke up in reality, you know, being my mother's son, you know, because I, I hated those braces. But they paid for themselves, thanks to John Hughes. I, they kind of, uh, <laughs> I paid through my own school and paid for my own braces. <laughs> was your mom in uh, Breakfast Club? She was, yeah. She she did a cameo. That's my little sister too. At the beginning, they show up, and that was John Hughes's idea, you know, because my parents were visiting the set at the time with my little sister, who was I think three at the time, and that was John's idea to kind of put them in. I thought that was great, nice little touch. Is this the first time or the last time we do this? Last. We'll get in there and use the time to your advantage. No, we're not supposed to study. We just have to sit there and do nothing. Well, Mister, you figure out a way to study. We'll go. And at the end of the picture, it's actually John picking me up, you know, kind of playing my father at the end. But he was just, I can't speak highly enough of him, uh, Dan. He was just such a great guy, man. He, he always was like conspiring with us to make things funnier. You know, he was always laughing on the set. Totally collaborative guy. You know, he was just, uh, just the best. You know, so I always, I'm, I'm very happy to tip my hat to him because I, I really wouldn't be here without him. I was also wondering that once you sort of grow up, was there a moment where you were like, now I'm a grown-up actor and I can't be that kid anymore? You know, I did all this work by the time I was 18 or 19, and then you just physically change. You know, by the time I'd done a film like Scissorhands in 1990, I'm like two feet taller than Johnny Depp and I'm playing a villain, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but there were definitely a lot of, you know, lean years there, Dan, in my early 20s, into my late 20s, very honestly, where it was a struggle. I think that people didn't know how to place me I wasn't the gawky kid anymore. You just have to have that mindset of, of never give up. And I'm going to work it this year round, no matter what. So how did you get involved with Halloween Kills? So basically, the way it came up, it was uh, in the summer of 2019, I got a call from one of my reps at Untitled, a management company that works with me, and they're great. And they told me about this opportunity. They were going to be doing the second installment of this rebooted version of Halloween. So I took a meeting with, with David Gordon Green. We met on La Cienega at the hotel he was staying at. And I just found him to be such a cool, personable guy. We just hit it off. We had a nice meeting. And then what happens, then I did my screen test after that. And I had about three scenes to prepare. And they were all pretty, 
you know, intense scenes. You know, when I'm doing a drama or something that requires, you know, some intensity, I really go all in, you know, whether it's this movie I did with Brad Pitt called War Machine on Netflix or, or something like this. So I really commit, you know, just like you need to when you're doing a comedy. You know, I felt really good about the work. I did a screen test and then they gave me the role. But bringing a comedy team in to do this, is there comedy in the movie? There is. I don't want to give away any spoilers. And to be honest, Dan, I'm going to see it for the first time with my wife today. After our interview, we're going to go to Blumhouse and see it. So it's an exciting day. But there, there is. There's some great character stuff. And part of what they did, which I think was genius in the context of this, they were able to thread the original characters from the 78 picture, Dan, into the 2018 version. And then essentially this is a carryover. So it's a continuation. I think a lot of people online are aware of this. It's not a big spoiler to give away, but... The night picks up the same night the last one ended, which is Halloween night. So they did something really, I think, masterful, which is kind of threading all that. And with Halloween Kills, the picture opens and all the survivors of, of Myers are meeting at this little bar we shot at in Wilmington, which is called Mix in the movie. It was called the Rusty Nail where we shot. And that's how the picture opens. Everyone's kind of convened on Halloween night to discuss the people we've lost in the wake of you know Michael Myers being unkillable and all that. I'm just so grateful to those guys, Dan, because they gave me such a great opportunity. This is really like a hero's role. Um, it's certainly an ensemble, you know, but I'm just really grateful to Jamie Lee, to Jason Blum, and to David and Danny for giving me this role. Uh, so I got to work with Judy Greer and Andy Matichek, really lovely ladies, great actresses. Jamie Lee was awesome. Evil dies tonight. I'm not just going to sit and watch another innocent person die. If you track Michael's victim, that's a straight line to Michael's childhood home. What do we do? We fight. Let's hunt him down. Do they still call him The Shape, or is he Mike Myers? Okay, so that's the thing. Now, going into this universe, as you know, often they'll, they'll give a code name to a project. So during the making of this picture, Dan, it was called Mob Rules because we didn't want it to go out that it was Halloween Kills. And yes, on the call sheet, he's referred to as the shape, always the shape. Do you remember uh, a Halloween costume that you wore? <laughs> Is there one that sticks out? Good. I know, kidding, man. I think I stopped celebrating Halloween like in grade school. I can't recall. I think I did a Spider-Man one year. My favorite growing up was always Batman, so I think it was probably like a Batman or a Spider-Man thing. How involved in the film was uh, John Carpenter? You know, I have not had the pleasure of meeting John, but I know that he and David are very close, and as you probably know, he did do score for the last film, and he and his son have scored the new one. They've done a phenomenal job. They released the, the soundtrack a few weeks back, actually, in advance of the film coming out. So I have not had a chance to meet him. I look forward to it. I hope I get to meet him at the upcoming premiere. You know, it's interesting with this cancellation or this, you know, temporary setback that all of us have been affected by with, with COVID and, and this, the seriousness of it. You know, it was kind of frustrating because we had to wait an extra year, right? So it's been a two-year wait on this film. The thing that's become a thing, as I'm sure you know, are these reaction videos. So I've watched probably 150 reaction videos between the time where the, the results of the test screenings for Halloween Kills were, were leaked and then also with the, the recent publicity of it. So there's a huge buzz on this film. It's really exciting. And I think what they really did is they amped up the intensity of this one. Because it's really, you know, in a slasher or in a horror context, you know, the villain is the hero. So you can't really win, you know what I mean? But on this film, I mean, the buzz on it is phenomenal. Everybody's saying it's really great. So I'm just really proud of my association. I'm really humbled and grateful to these people that hired me and gave me this shot. It's going to be a treat to see how audiences respond. 
And my final point about that is just that in the in the context of horror films, as you know, I mean, Halloween is like the Star Wars of the horror genre. It's beloved, and I've really seen that by watching all these reaction videos. There's such a anticipation for the picture, which is really fun, really exciting. Hey, congratulations on everything. I knew that I was going to track you down. I wanted to make sure that we did this because I'm a fan. I, I wish you well. And of course, the next season of Yellowstone, I, I wish you well. <laughs> as uh, you know, <laughs> right I on. forget who told me to bring that up to you. Go, yeah, say that to Mike. You know, yeah. he'll he'll uh, get a great great reaction because he's confused with that actor all the time. Yeah, so, no, that guy's getting, um, he's getting some good work. I should hire his agent. <laughs> <laughs> great to talk to you. Thanks for being a good sport, and good luck with uh, Halloween Kills. Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure to be with you, Dan. Thanks for the time. If you or somebody you know may consider suicide, contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at one eight hundred two seven three eight two five five. New episodes of that scene are available exclusively on Amazon Music. And all of season one is available wherever you get your podcasts. So make sure you follow us in the Amazon Music app. That scene with Dan Patrick, created, hosted, produced by me. Our showrunner and producer is Brendan Pike. The show is executive produced by Paul Anderson, Nick Pinella, and Andrew Greenwood. Edited by Jordan Fair. Our associate producers, Bill Ryan and Marvin Prince. That scene is an Amazon original and a production of Dan Patrick Productions. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to That Scene with Dan Patrick ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.